G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher, so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Suhaib Mir, who is doing a Master of Science in Epidemiology under the supervision of Dr. Patty Groom. Welcome to Grad Chat, Z. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm going to let, let people into a bit of a secret here. Z is actually already a medical doctor, so he's done all the hard work in the clinical side of things. What made you want to come back to school to do a master's degree? Well, so I, I'm, I'm doing my residency in general surgery right now okay. uh, at Queen's. And for people that are interested in pursuing more research than you typically would do within the residency program through the postgraduate education, you can actually do something called the Clinician Investigator Program. Oh, so okay. that affords you to spend a dedicated amount of time, in my case, two years to pursue a master's degree. If you already have a master's, uh, there are uh, other residents that are pursuing PhDs right, uh, yes. or postdoctoral fellowships as well. And right. so I'm interested in not only practicing my area of medicine or surgery in this case, but also building the knowledge and, and changing practice and asking questions that will change practice. And so that's sort of how I ended up uh, finding myself applying into the CIP and then uh, ultimately <laughs> doing the master's. And a lot more work for it. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Are you finding it interesting already? Oh, I'm like, yeah, I'm very happy with uh, having taken this path. I've learned so much outside of clinical medicine, just in the way research is conducted, right. in how to ask questions that you should be researching. What are the good questions to ask? What are the questions that will ultimately have an impact back in the clinical realm? Yes. Which is what it's all about for me. Is And I think that's important because, I mean, we have a lot of clinicians and then we have a lot of researchers. But to have someone that's both... Yeah. has a better understanding, you know, that bigger picture that we always talk about, you know, don't just be just your own little stream, what else is happening around you that can make processes better, understanding better, all that sort of thing. Yeah, more and more in academia, I find that you can't just one area of expertise, mm-hmm. you can certainly specialize in a specific field, but it's, it's a lot more beneficial if you have a bunch of different skill sets and are, are well versed in a bunch of different languages, right. uh, so to speak, and can then ask more unique questions and also understand more about your area as a result of that. And I think after interviewing some other people, for instance, occupational therapists or physiotherapists, mm-hmm. they've been in the doing practice for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And there's things that happen there, they go, you know, we, we can do this better. And so they come back and do like a master's or a PhD in rehabilitation science. Sure. So they can sort of work a little bit more and then take that back into the field. So uh, doing those sorts of things, I think, are fascinating. If you've got the time and the inclination, of course, to do that. For sure. Yeah, it, it definitely adds a lot more time to your training, which is long already. Yes. I've added two extra years to a five-year program. Right. So i be at Queen's for a bit longer. But, you know, if, if you're getting the benefit out of it and mm-hmm. you're making a difference at the end of the day, then I think it's totally it's worth it. All worth it. So I guess we better talk about your research because yeah. that's what you're here for. And so your your research, is, I always say this, it's a bit of a mouthful. It is the post-operative liver decompensation events following partial hepatectomy for hepatocellular carcinoma among patients with cirrhosis. I've got the cirrhosis part. It was all yeah. those heptos that yeah. I... 
or we struggle with. Can you give us a bit more of an overview of what that research is focusing on? It's something to do with the liver, Absolutely. for starters. Yes. So plain language summary, patients get different types of cancers and liver cancer is one of them. Right. It's not the most common, but it's increasing in the amount of people that are starting to get it. Oh, is that right? And part of that is because of what causes it is changing. Previously, it used to be a lot of viral hepatitis, liver infections right. that would uh, result in liver damage or cirrhosis. But now fatty liver and alcoholic cirrhosis are becoming a lot more common, especially in Western populations as we're vaccinating right. for the viral causes. So there's a whole bunch of different causes that are increasing the incidence of liver cancer. And as a result of that, well, what they're, what they're actually doing is increasing the incidence of underlying liver disease. And okay. that predisposes you to get liver cancer. 80 to 90% of liver cancers occur in patients with cirrhotic livers. And cirrhosis is just a oh. medical term for underlying liver disease. Okay. So when you are looking at treating them with all the different options, it's, it's quite interesting and technically challenging because you have to take into account the underlying disease burden of the cancer. Mm -hmm. But you also have to take into account their liver function. And the liver is not like the other organs, like the kidneys or the heart, where you can put them on dialysis or put them on a pump that can support cardiac function. So when you have someone with decreased liver function, you really don't have a lot of options to supplement that by artificial means. Okay. So coming back to my research question, if you're trying to provide curative treatment for patients with liver cancer and they have underlying liver disease, when you're attempting to cut out the tumor, you have to balance between performing an adequate operation for their cancer, but you also have to leave behind enough liver to function properly. Right. If they have underlying liver disease, that becomes challenging because it's not just a volume issue, it's how functional that liver is. And so what I'm interested in studying specifically is how many patients do we operate on because we think we'll leave them within a functional liver that end up with liver-related issues after. Because in retrospect, we can say, well, perhaps they're worse off because their liver function is not sustainable after we've removed the tumor. Right. And so now they're visiting a whole host of other problems. So the, ultimately, the goal is to try and improve patient selection for liver surgery and improve outcomes from liver surgery for primary liver cancer in this group of patients that have underlying liver disease, which represents 80 to 90% of that, that group. So what made you, I guess, start from the beginning? What made you want to look into this particular area? Why the liver? Why this cancer? Why the cirrhosis? What made you decide, oh, that's my topic? Yeah, I mean, a bunch of different experiences brought me to this. Uh, Certainly, my clinical experience as a resident in mm -hmm. surgery got me interested in liver surgery as a technical field and okay. as a surgical field, the curiosity around it, the balancing of liver physiology, technical difficulty of the operations, and how much you can affect change in those patients' lives. Right, right. The outcomes from liver cancer are quite dismal. The five-year overall survival for any for all comers diagnosed with is 18%. Oh, is that right? So it's an area where there's certainly room to make a huge amount of mm -hmm. difference. And so among the people that we think we can cure of this disease, it's really important to try and affect outcomes so that you can improve them as much as you can. 
And that sort of combination of things is what got me interested in this. That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) See what you can learn when you're doing residency. For sure. (laughs) It it gives you a nice context to frame your research in. Yes. So you're not doing something that might seem very nebulous to you because as part of my program, I'm still working at the hospital. And so Mm -hmm. what I learn in my master's, I'm able to translate right back Back into into the clinical setting and also develop and refine my research questions from the clinical setting. So it's nice to have that crosstalk. That's great. So are you using part of your subjects as being those at the hospital right now? Or or is it different to that? So the nice thing about doing graduate studies in epidemiology is it's population level. So you're not just studying individual patients at one center. You have the capability and the skills to study large groups of patients. So I'm using big data sets that through administrative health databases that are collected by the Ministry of Health and other organizations and then are are linked together. So I can study patients. And in my case, I am studying patients that have liver cancer across all of Ontario over 10 years. Right. That's great. And so so it gives you really a lot more ability to to answer research questions across different groups of people. But the the data collection or the data set that you've got yes where's your where's your kind of your baseline because a lot of the times with research if you don't have that baseline you can have a lot of data but everyone's Mm -hmm. data is different it makes it hard to get some correlations going right so are are there some baselines that were already put in place for this for you so the, the way this data is collected is it's routinely collected so when you go through the healthcare system as a patient, you use your OHIP card and that can track what diagnosis was attached to what visit. Okay. You have blood tests and those results are reported within a laboratory system. You can have surgical procedures and then those are reported in a in a specific database. Okay. What uh, an organization like ICES, which has a branch here at Queen's, but is a provincial organization linked with the Ministry of Health's data, they can take all those different data points and link them to each individual. Okay. So what right. what you're really getting is a snapshot of a cohort of people traveling through our healthcare system right. with a specific disease, depending on what you're researching, or with specific outcomes and looking back. And so it really gives you the ability to study a large group of people without sort of the bias of, of being located at one place. Right. The patients that we see in Kingston might inherently be different from patients in Toronto or Ottawa or Sudbury. But being able to study all patients with liver cancer in the province gives you the ability to avoid those institutional and geographic differences and really look at what's happening as a whole to this group of patients. But I guess down the track too, yes, as a whole, but then you could also look at geographies and things and saying, you know, why is this this geographic location coming up with these results, which is totally different to everybody else? And that's, that's pretty big, and especially in cancer care. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of researchers here at Queen's have contributed so much to that field of literature is why are there geographic differences in outcomes from cancer care? Right. Whether that's chemotherapy, whether that's surgery, whether that's radiation. Why are there sex differences? Right. Why are there differences in socioeconomic status? These are the types of questions you can ask when you're doing these types of population studies. And these are the types of questions that interest me as a clinician, because if if everything is equal in the care I provide, then I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that my outcomes are going to be somewhat consistent. And trying to understand why they're not or what might affect them, right. uh, I think is important because then you can attempt to mitigate that in your clinical practice. Because as we know, everyone's an individual. Exactly. Everyone has different backgrounds, etc. So that's, that's an important part. 
You talked about the, the liver. We have to be very, very careful with the liver because it's not like some others where hmm. we can have other options. But what options, what other options are there available to patients with liver cancer other than being drastic and having surgery? Yeah, so there's a couple of different options and it's nice to be able to break them down into your curative options, right? your life-prolonging non-curative options, and then your supportive measures. Okay. And so with any cancer, you, when you talk about staging, and as most people either personally have been affected by cancer or know someone with any type of cancer, are familiar with trying to understand how bad the cancer is, where it's spread. Right. And so depending on the different parameters by which we assess that, we can then decide okay, the curative options for liver cancer are resection or liver surgery, which is cutting out the tumor and a little bit of healthy liver around it. Right. The other option is liver transplant. That is unique in that not only does it get rid of the cancer, it helps you get rid of the underlying liver disease. Right. So, mm-hmm. But then it's hard to be on the, to get that, a liver That's transplant. the issue, right? So you're, it's hard to find a donor and it's a high-risk procedure, and you're on immune suppression, and there's a whole host of other complications that could happen with liver transplants. So those are typically considered the curative options for liver cancer. There are, for smaller tumors, you can burn them with microwave ablation, we call it, or radiofrequency ablation. So burning the tumor, if it's really, really small, has shown some good curative outcomes as well. But then you shift to sort of the life-prolonging measures. Mm -hmm. So Can we use chemotherapy? Can we use targeted immune therapy? Can we use radiotherapy in certain specific settings? And then more systemic chemotherapy or supportive measures in cases where, you know, you really can't have a chance. There's only so much you can resect. Well, that's that's sort of the downside. And then Mm -hmm. chemotherapy, the liver detoxifies your blood. And so a lot of therapies that we do that are medical can be toxic to the liver as well. Right, right. Ooh, lots of different things to think about. So it's challenging, but it it, is challenging, but that makes it interesting and it, it motivates you to try and, and work it out a little bit. I'm glad it's you and not me. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of alluded to this, but how will this actually translate into clinical practice once you've done it? I mean, what are you expecting to come from your research? Right. So my specific project is looking at trying to understand who develops negative outcomes after liver surgery among patients with cirrhosis right. for liver cancer. And so once we have a good sense of who those people are, I'm actually trying to identify predictors of those adverse post-operative liver decompensation events. Right. Uh, we call them POLD sometimes, but that's just the, the acronym for it. Once you can identify what the predictors are, that's, that's sort of the scope of my master's, but taking my master's research beyond what we are hopeful of being able to do is then creating a risk prediction model using even more population level data. So we can actually score patients before surgery to see what their probability or their risk of developing an adverse outcome after this type of intervention is. Right. So that we can then make better decisions about who we should recommend surgery to remove the tumor on versus who we should recommend a transplant on versus who we should say, you know, while technically we can remove this tumor, we don't deem this curable because we think you're going to end up with a whole host of other complications. And so we would not recommend that operation in you because it, it'll expose you to risk of dying or risk of worse off quality of life. 
How do you figure out these predictors, though? I mean, that can't be easy. Well, that, that's the whole beauty of working with population-level data is we can look at all the outcomes. You know, I'm studying roughly 8,000 people diagnosed with liver cancer in Ontario over a period of time. Right. We can look at their outcomes. We can see among the people that developed the negative outcomes what risk factors they had. Leading into. Correct. And how they were different from the people that didn't. Right. And based on that, mm-hmm. we can try and identify what, what the differences are and whether or not those are good predictors of it. And once you've done that, then a future study can try and develop a risk prediction model incorporating all those risk factors right. so that in the clinical setting, when I'm talking to a patient about surgery for their liver cancer, I can say, well, look, we've identified X, Y, and Z to be risk factors here are your risk factors. Here's what we recommend based on that. Based on so it. we can make recommendations with a little bit more information. So what are, I mean, I don't know if you can say this right now, but what are some of those predictors that you, you've found to date with all that research? I mean, 8,000 odd is a lot. Yes. So at this point, we're, with our data set, we're still looking at trying to fully identify all of those. But in the literature, the ones that have been characterized are old age, presence of diabetes, The severity of your underlying liver disease, which sort of makes sense. If you have really bad liver disease from the get-go, if we do any liver surgery on you, you'll probably have a negative outcome. Right. So those are known predictors. What we're trying to do is see how those corroborate within a large population study, whether they're still good predictors, and whether we can identify any new ones. And that's what I'm hoping to add to the literature, to this body of literature, is are there new ones that we previously didn't know predicted Mm -hmm. these outcomes that we now will? So, and I guess some of those, you you alluded to before, alcohol is the obvious one, Mm -hmm. because we always hear about alcohol and liver cirrhosis and stuff. Are there other, with with the changing world that we've got right now... (laughs) Yeah. And the way we eat and the way we live, etc. Are you seeing anything that's popping up that's not not what we would expect? And I know it could be really early for you to say that. but It's probably a bit early, but if I had to predict, I think fatty liver disease is right, you popping up as a, mm-hmm. as a bigger risk factor now. And the reason for that is as we're getting better at managing the viral causes of liver disease, the other causes of the rarer causes of cirrhosis or liver disease, and we're improving outcomes in patients with cirrhosis at baseline, there's a whole group of more younger people that are being affected by non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, also Mm -hmm. called NAF-LD, NAF-LD. And research is showing that those rates in North America are starting to go up. We don't have problems with sort of widespread viral hepatitis or exposure to parasites that affect the liver. Right. So those, I would expect, will start to represent a larger proportion of patients with underlying liver disease. And yes, they all end up with underlying liver disease, but the way they get there is different. And so at a molecular level, it'll be interesting to see if that translates to different outcomes just based on how you got to that got point. Got to that point. Because that, that brings up my, my point too, is because what you're looking at is is the predictor of how well they'll do, for instance, with sur- after surgery. Yeah. But like in anything in health, what's better is prevention rather than, rather than trying to figure out what's the best cure. So in your data set that you've been looking at, will you be able to highlight more of those areas 
which you've already mentioned, like the the fatty liver mm-hmm. and alcohol and age and all those ages. You can't help age. Age is age. Yeah. <laughs> but some of those other ones that you already know, will you be able to say? Because to me, is let's reduce the number of people who have a liver issue. Would your data set help show these are some of the factors causing the liver? Apart from the viral and those sort of things, mm-hmm. will will also identify some of those other bits and pieces. That's a natural and very good question to ask. And my specific research area is not going to be able to answer that question. Okay. But my one of my supervisors and a whole host of other researchers at Queen's are currently working on that. Right. Specifically looking at how that profile of patients developing underlying liver disease is changing and what we can do to identify their risk and, and mitigate it. Right. Can I ask you another thing? I know you were not looking too much into the geography and gender and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but in your data set, have you chosen a specific age group or anything right now, or is it just whoever has shown the liver disease? So it'll be all adults, okay. which we usually benchmark at 18, and you can sort of debate on whether or not that's a good, you know, what if you're 17 and nine months, right? should you count or not? Generally, it is a disease that doesn't develop in younger people, Okay. Uh, the liver cancer. Right. Um, underlying liver disease, as I mentioned, is starting to develop more in younger people. But at the end of the day, I haven't restricted it beyond that. So we're right. looking at all adults above the age of 18 diagnosed with a new liver cancer over a certain period of time within Ontario. And how long, with the with the research that you've done to date, is there a period of time from people starting, well, first hit the data set because they've been diagnosed with some sort of liver disease mm. to when potentially the surgery happens? Okay. Okay. So is, is there a length of time normally when the, the doctors say, you know, this is the point now that you potentially have to have surgery? Is it similar or is it changing all the time too? Because well, you're saying, first of all, like the young ones, are get, it's getting younger yes. who are getting it. So are they getting picked up earlier if they have to go to the drastic stage of being having a liver resection? So just having the underlying liver disease doesn't mean that you need the resection. True. It's, it's having the diagnosis of a liver cancer right. as a result of that liver disease. And while we're not specifically looking at the duration from onset of liver disease to diagnosis of liver cancer, we know that in patients with underlying cirrhosis, there are screening guidelines that that they have to attempt to catch liver cancer as early Earlier. as possible. Okay. Typically, they get ultrasounds every six months okay. is, is one of the recommendations. Right. So... We're, we're not looking, that that represents a different interval in the patient's journey in a patient that mm-hmm. has been diagnosed with liver cancer. We're looking more at something more downstream of that. So we know that these are patients that have liver cancer. Right. We know they have underlying liver disease. We know that we're going to put them through a surgery to attempt to cure their cancer, but they'll have significantly more risk because of their liver disease. Can we mitigate the risk of surgery and the effects on their underlying liver disease while still providing them curative surgery. Right, okay. And so that is focused on a specific downstream area within that patient's journey. And that's interesting to me because as someone that's you know going to be a surgeon in a few years, those are decisions that will affect my practice and my patient population. And if we can make those decisions more informed and better, right. then it's better for everyone. So... Talking more about a little bit more about your MD and mm-hmm. your residency, so being wanting to be a surgeon, 
Does that mean with some of the stuff that you do that you would think down the track you'd be a specialist in the liver? Yeah, that's the goal. That's the goal? That's the goal. Ooh. Yeah. Because you don't hear about You always hear about the cardio and, you know, all the fancy words and getting the old ticker going and stuff like that so you don't often hear about people wanting to think about going into say the liver liver i think you you're probably a lot of people that that are talking and carrying out research that you have the opportunity to interact with are probably a little bit more undifferentiated than i am Mm -hmm. whereas i'm coming at this from already having a clinical specialty that i'm training in right which is general surgery and then using that to inform the type of research that I'm doing here and then bringing this back to that setting. Right. As opposed to had I done my master's before residency or before medical school, I'd probably be a little bit more undifferentiated too. Right. So in that yes. sense, it's kind of nice because I know what I want to do with my master's. Right. And the questions that I have about what I'm learning can be more directed towards my specific area. Right. I still get to learn about all the other examples mm-hmm. uh, and the applications of it. And so maybe I'm not being as broad with... with it might still be general, but then you have that specialty. It's nice to be able to ground what I'm mm-hmm. learning in in my other clinical life. So does that mean after you've done your master's, you'll do your PhD? It's been a thought. It's, it's something <laughs> I, I haven't fully... Let's add another four years. Yeah, why not? We've already been 20 or so. <laughs> Okay, ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, it's, uh, it's a thought in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. I haven't ruled that out yet. But uh, for me, completing my master's and getting and back into, into clinical practice to finishing my residency mm-hmm. is sort of the first priority. And then depending on their, you know, subspecializing and, and doing a PhD with that might, right. might certainly be in the cards. So you'd be an MD, PhD, everything else. Well, it's not about the number of letters no, you have after true. your name. It's about, <laughs> it's about what you do with what you learn. And I think for me, this, as I mentioned, the, the, the thing I enjoy most about it is its applicability to what I do at the hospital. Right. And, and, and I think we're very lucky here at, at, in Kingston and at Queen's because the hospital is right there. And we do have this big thing back with cancer trials and yeah. direct access to the various surgeons and things. So I think we're very fortunate to have all that in such close proximity of what we're doing. I think the interdisciplinary aspect of it is amazing. I don't have one sort of supervisor. Dr. Groom is my day-to-day supervisor, yes. but really I have three supervisors and two of them are clinicians right. and one of them is an epidemiologist. And so the perspectives I get on the research questions I'm asking and how I'm designing my approach to my master's uh, is just phenomenal. I, I wouldn't change that. That's good. Yeah. That was a good answer. We like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to give you a chance to show people that it's not all, all work. Yes. And, and fun in research and things because I understand you like playing basketball and you like hiking. Yeah. Once again, hiking around Kingston. Are, are you from Kingston? I'm not from Kingston. Okay. No. So hiking, if you, I'm sure you found out, hiking around Kingston is fabulous. What have you found living in Kingston? Well, I think Kingston has been great. I, I went to medical school in Ottawa and so, again, another great town. But I would say the thing that I've loved most about Kingston is the proximity to the water and the yeah. accessibility on the water, especially, obviously, in the summertime. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly, you can just go down to the water and jump in. Yeah. You can throw in a <laughs> paddleboard, and, and that's awesome. Like, anywhere downtown is a less than a five-minute walk, really, from the water. Right. The hiking around Kingston has also been awesome. I really enjoyed it. I ultimately was able to 
to develop my endurance with hiking to the point where I went on a hiking trip. Oh, great. To Chile. And, and it oh, was, that would have been awesome. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And, and so, you know, getting the opportunity to do all that while doing my master's is fantastic. And so at some stage when you're actually writing up your master's. Which will be soon. Okay, Okay. so the end of August, we've got a writing retreat at Elbow Lake. Oh, where's that? That's 30 minutes north of here, one of our biology stations. Okay. And you come away for a week, and uh, you write during the day, but you can go swimming, you can go canoeing, you can go hiking, yeah. that sort of thing. And then I think I'm going to be doing a writing workshop this there, fall. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> got you hooked already. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you're a bit of a basketballer, so you've got a bit of height. A little bit. Could be higher for a basketballer. Probably. That's why I ended up going to medical school. <laughs> I had the same problem. I was yeah. a basketballer, and I used to think I was tall, but no, I wasn't. Yeah, you, you didn't realize that you were only the tallest person around your class or your school. Exactly, and then you get to the real big world, and you get, okay, yeah. maybe not. Maybe the schools aren't quite what I think they should be. Yeah, for sure. But are you still playing basketball, like just recreationally around Yeah, here? we actually have a we have a team that we play every week. Great. Um, so usually in the winters, that's what I'm doing, and then in the summers, outdoors. Outdoors. Yeah. That's that's the way to do it. Absolutely. So, so Z, we've come to the end of our show i really do thank you for coming on i know you're, you're busy i mean one thing is doing a master but it's also got your residency at the same time so i really do appreciate you taking the time to do this and explaining a bit more how both sections work and, and can work together as well thank you for having so, me it's a pleasure good well thank you very much so that's it everyone a another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes google podcasts or stitcher just type in grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with i big hooray for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.